Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Stardust Memories, 
and he's got some interesting stories to share about that. But um, And most recently, he's just wrapped up work as the voice of the school PA announcer for the tween sitcom pilot Arthur Futuro. Um, and when he's not acting, he works as the post-production sound supervisor for film, TV, and animation at Jam Room Communications. So he's a busy guy. I uh, I I really want to meet him. He, he sounds really he sounds really good. I like to meet him sometimes. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. What a what a lovely introduction. That now uh, have a good night, everybody. I think that there's no more we can say, Bob. That, that's it. But thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Take care. <laughs> well, before Steve, before we even get into uh, you know your your incredible adventure with Star Trek the Motion Picture, tell us first about. Yeah what it was like uh, being the host of the original Star Trek con and that, that atmosphere back then. It was, it was very special. And only now, Bob, looking back, do we know how special it was? I mean, everyone knows every year they look forward to comic con. Those things didn't mm-hmm. exist. There, there was Lunacon mm-hmm. back then. And the first Star Trek convention happened in 1972. And I, I wasn't there. I heard about it in 73. So a friend and I went from – we were in high school, seniors at the time, and we went down to New York City. I believe it was the Commodore Hotel back then. It's now the uh, – it, it's, it's now a, a different hotel, but uh, same location. And we went there and just experienced the Star Trek thing, and it was really fun. And they said they have a talent show. And I said, well, you know, we don't have anything planned. And my friend Barry, who I was with, said – why don't you do those voices, Steve, that you do at lunch, you know, the, the, those Star Trek things you do? I said, well, it's not really a routine. He said, well, go, just go up and try. So he, he coaxed me into going it. Everybody at the convention was already into convention stuff, even though there's maybe only a couple thousand people. I say only because we all know how, how big it got. But I was wearing my, uh, my Ranny School uh, blue blazer and tie and, and gray slacks and – Everybody else was dressed, you know, like aliens and, and Trek characters. And I got up on stage and started to do my, my impressions, my favorite being, uh, you know, um, Mr. Scott. Scott, he goes, uh, Mr. Scott, I need Warp Factor 8. I said, I can't do a thing about it. Stuff. The engines are going to blow. And I just kept saying things <laughs> that came to, to mind. Uh, Mr. Sulu, the line when he's uh, on the freezing planet, says, oh, could you drop us a, a pot of coffee and, and a long rope, Captain? Uh, uh, uh. And I just would do the – and the audience was laughing. So I just kept making stuff up, and, and they were laughing, and I kept going. And if you know what it feels like, if you're, has your foot – you know what it feels like when your foot falls asleep and you've got that pins and needles in your foot, your leg? Yeah. My entire body felt like that. I was, it was one of those, those movie moments where you can hear the audience laughing, but it's got that echoey thing to it. Like I wasn't really there. You, you know when they do that with the, with the, uh, yeah. the motion pictures and the TV? It's like, ha, 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 ha. But I wasn't, I wasn't really relating to it. So I kept going until I ran out of things to say. And uh, thank you very much. Here he is. And, and he, I walked off stage, and I said, I won. I, I won the, you know, the test. And the lady who was in charge said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we had to disqualify you. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? I, I, I was killing out there. She said, well, it's a three-minute time limit, and, and uh, you went six minutes, and if we gave you the prize, there would be pandemonium in the, in, in the hall, yeah. so we, we can't give you. I said, 
darn. I said, well, why didn't you stop me? She said, because you were killing out there. For, for those uninitiated, thank you. For those uninitiated, the word killing in show business means you're, you're really, in, the audience is, is really enjoying you. They're laughing, falling over on their, you know, on their sides. So I said, well, what do you mean? You know, and she said, well, you were killing out there. We didn't want to stop you. Everybody else really pretty much stunk, and, and they paid a lot of money. I think it was like you know, $22 back then, a lot of money uh, in 1973, <laughs> and, and um, you were entertaining them. So we can't give you the prize, but how would you like to be on the program next year? I said, okay, and now I'm, I'm a high school kid. I'm negotiating. Well, are you going to pay me? Well, well, no, we can't pay you. Well, are you going to give me a hotel room? Well, maybe we'll give you a hotel room. Uh, well, then I want to be in the big room where all the actors are because, as we all know, going to the conventions these days, there are multiple things going on. You know, there's a, a dealer's room. And there's a room where they have the art show and a room where they might have a, a speaker that's talking about the special effects or the makeup or the art. And then there's the big room where the, the stars will appear. And I wanted to be on that room, and I wanted to be specifically introduced by the master of ceremonies because I knew I would get my name in the newspaper, maybe even 10 seconds on the, the evening news. So they said, okay, okay, you'll be in the big room introduced by the master of ceremonies, and, and we're not going to pay you, but that's the deal. So I'm, so I'm excited. I'm excited. And uh, the fellow who was going to host the convention, uh, Chris Rush, who was a comedian. I don't know. Do you know him, Bob? Uh, he passed away, and I'm sorry I never got to talk to him. Yeah, but Chris Rush. Yeah, he did a couple of comedy records, and they had bits on there that had smatterings of Star Trek. It wasn't a whole Star Trek routine like I had eventually developed called If We. If We Could, you know. But his he talked about transporter units and he, he talked about some things and he was going to host the show and they called two weeks before the convention he goes steve uh, there's going to be a going to be a change in the uh, in the convention uh, program i said what do you mean so well you're you're not going to be introduced by the master of ceremonies i said what do you mean what do you mean he said you promised me that was the deal he said, wait 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 calm, calm down the reason you are not going to be introduced by the master of ceremonies is because chris rush quit on us we didn't have anybody to host the show we thought you were funny at the at the you know the last years at the costume ball and talent show and we'd like you to host the show we're going to pay you for the show give you a hotel room Mm -hmm. and you'll be the master of ceremony so as it turned out i wasn't introduced by the master of ceremonies because i became the master of ceremonies and that's how it started that's how it started I still remember my first meeting with, with George Takei, Bob, and Herc. The first, hello, Herc, hello, Herc. I'm too old. My voice, I can't get the high, uh, I, can't, I can't get the, the Newton voice, but uh, you know what I'm saying. The, um, there, there's, right, and I'm, I'm introduced to George Takei, and I didn't, nobody knew, nobody knew how to pronounce their names back then. We had just, this is the first or second convention. And I said, oh, nice to meet you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Takei. And he said, no, it's okay, like, okay, you know, okay, okay. And that's when I first met George. And uh, Well, you know, to... I remember James Dewan actually introducing him as Takai. I thought it was Takai as well for quite a while. And then when I, you know, because I saw James, uh, James Dewan first at, at conventions, and then when George came on, I was like, oh, James got his name wrong. You would think he would know well, that. Well, Jim, 
Jimmy was interesting with with and pronunciations. I, I say Jimmy James doing obviously when you yeah. when you meet so when you meet celebrities, however they introduce you to them is how you call them. You know, I was ready to call him Mr. Doing and Mr. You know Takai. Um, yeah. Steve, this is George. This is George, and this is Jimmy. And Jimmy once was talking about um, the the episode, the Greek the Greek mythology episode, which is a perfect uh, a perfect venue for us to talk about tonight. And all Thank through you. his talk, yeah, all through the Plato's children, right? And and all through his talk, he kept saying, "Who mourns for Adonias?" I swear that's how Jimmy pronounced it. <laughs> and and everyone at the convention. You know, changed their pronunciation, and we all walked around saying Adonias until we went home and 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 found that uh, it was really Adonis. So, <laughs> oh, that's funny. So all this led Bill, off of course, to your you know, becoming yeah. a randorite. Explain yes. to us what a randorite is and the whole makeup process that you underwent. Well. I didn't know I was a Randorite until recently with the Star Trek Wikipedia, the uh, the Memory Alpha, uh, because when I got there, the the head – this is neat too. Uh, I got to meet a, a, another lifelong friend. When I was on the set, George Takei said, oh, Steve, you're from New Jersey, right? I said, he said, yeah. I said, I want you to meet Billy. Billy Van Zandt, if you saw the first film, was – he had a big part in the film, but a lot of it, most of it got lost because of time and, and they had to cut scenes. But he was the alien boy on the bridge, and he was played by Billy Van Zant, who is now married to Adrian Barbeau, Carol from Maud. But his brother is Steve Van Zant from the, uh, the Springsteen Band and, and, other, and other things. And George introduced me to him because Billy's from New Jersey, Middletown, and I was from Freehold, and we met on the, on the set. Billy was the head alien, so because I was just a, a day player, you, I actually worked three days, but you're still a day player. Billy had a, a meteor role. I'm sorry, not more of it's left, but he uh, they used his molding, his head. They didn't, they didn't. If you've seen the prosthetic process where they have to take a mold of your head and then they mm-hmm. and then they pull it off and it makes a sound, and then they fill it with plaster. And then on top of that, they put the clay and they mold the alien head on the clay, and then they mold it again and make a rubber cast. They did that for Billy because he was the head alien on the ship. But for the scene in, in the Star Trek, the uh, the rec deck scene, they didn't have time to do that for every every extra. So they actually made extra castings of Billy's head makeup, his headpiece. And you know, you talk about walking in someone else's shoes. I was walking in someone else's head. And it didn't fit just right. And it didn't fit just right. It was molded for Billy's head, and his head's a different shape a little bit than mine. And but but it worked. And I was uh, what Freddie Phillips called a bumphead originally, because if you you look me up on the the IMDb, you can see pictures of me, and I have dark hair and kind of a a, a similar facial uh, shape as Leonard Nimoy. I don't have a round face. I've got the longer face. And I said, oh, I want to be a Vulcan. You can. Cut my hair point, you know, yeah, across and my pointed cyber. Yeah. And I was excited because I thought maybe I could be a Vulcan and then come back to Freehold and everyone would know I was in Star Trek. And he said, No, nah, we have enough Freddie Phillips, Fred B. Fred, Fred B. Phillips, who you saw the credits as makeup artist. Freddie said, Oh, no, we got enough, uh, we got enough Vulcans for the scene. He says, uh, uh, You're going to be a bumphead. I said, What the hell is a bumphead? He says, You are. <laughs> Sit down. 
And the first thing they did was cut my sideburns off, which had already been trimmed the day before pointed, which I was really excited about because I could come back at least and have the pointed sideburns as a crew member. But in order to put the prosthetic makeup on, they, they not only cut the pointed sideburns, but my entire sideburn off to the top of your ear because the plastic has to grow, you know, glue in all the way around yeah. it. And they transform me into that, that alien called a randodite. They called it a vegan. When we were on the set, they said I was a vegan crewman, V-E-G-A-N. And, and it wasn't until I saw Memory Alpha that I see that I'm a randodite, but no one ever mentioned that name. When we were there, somebody must have got a script or you know some notes or something and found that, but uh, but we didn't know that. I I had read something in Starlog about a K Normian, so I thought maybe you were one of those, but you know that that throws a third thing in the you know into the whole mix yeah, I, here. I, but you're, you're, you're I, I used the name. I know I don't know Bob. I used the name because that's what Memory Alpha says I am, and, and yeah. God forbid that I should should cross Memory Alpha. So I, I, yeah, I, I trust and respect them. Probably the, the top authority here. That's what I figured. So if yeah. that's what they say, I had all the publicity things changed by my publicist, uh, Noodlehead Productions, and had everything changed uh, from vegan to to uh, randorite. So I know that uh, you were excited about having a hotel room while you were at the convention, but. You didn't get a hotel room when you went out to film this. You got a much better place. Uh, I, tell us how I, that all came about. I, I did. You, Bob, as as, uh, as the audience is, is learning, uh, knows me all too well. It was it was kind of neat. So I hosted I hosted those early conventions, not only the seventy four, but seventy five, seventy six, seventy seven, seventy eight. I, I did all of them in New York through uh, through nineteen eighty one, with a couple of trips out of town. We did Philadelphia in 1975 in Atlanta, Georgia. And I don't remember the year we did Georgia, but maybe 78. Um, somebody out there knows, so let us, let us know. I have to, I'm still researching that stuff for my memoir. But when I got the role, it was not so much a, we want you to come in and audition for this part. It was Gene Rodberry's way of saying thank you, not just to me, but a number of other people who he felt helped keep Star Trek alive. Keep Star Trek in the news. Uh, these conventions brought fans out, thousands of fans, as the conventions grew from, from you know, two thousand to three thousand to, to ten thousand mm-hmm. and more. And and Roddenberry appreciated that because it gave him something to go into the you know the suits at Paramount and said, mm-hmm. look, you know, we we've got an audience out there, and they kept you know I I owe I owe everybody in Star Trek owes their their um, their bread and butter to Star Wars. Because Paramount kept turning down Roddenberry's concepts for a new TV show, a pilot, uh, a return, you know, maybe once a month, like uh, like a Columbo, like the mystery wheel of, of you know, the mystery yeah. wheel that they used to have on there of, of, uh, uh, of CBS. And finally, Star Wars comes out. It's a huge hit. And Paramount calls Gene Roddenberry back in. They go, hey, don't we own a science fiction product of some sort? And Gene says, yeah, it's called Star Trek. And they said, okay, you can make the films. And that's how it got made. So if it were not for Star, Star Wars, there would be no Star Trek. So I'm not one of those people, oh, which do you like better? They're, they're different. Do you, do you like you know, apples Absolutely, or oranges? Yeah. You know, it, 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 they're different. I like them both for what they are. And thank, uh, thankfully, um, Star Wars opened the door uh, to us. Absolutely. 
so so the question i'm sorry i lost the question so so i i got the role as a gift as a thank you not not because i was a great actor i thought i and still am competent but uh, mm-hmm. the gift was uh, come on out to california and we'll we'll do something with you and of course you heard this story the makeup and i was excited i was very friendly with with you know multiple members of the cast but sometimes you just gravitate towards one and you actually have a connection and I had that with James Dillon, Jimmy Dillon, Scotty, uh, possibly because he enjoyed the way I did his voice. And it was always my favorite character, as much as I love the others, and certainly Captain Kirk. I, I was really a Scotty fan, so it was a big deal that, that not only did I get to meet him, but became friends. And he said, I said, Jimmy, uh, guess what? They, they, they just called me from Roddenberry's office, and I'm, I'm going to be in the motion picture. He said, that's great, Steve. He, by the way, didn't say, that's great, Steve. He doesn't talk like that. So, so he said, uh, "Where are you going to stay?" I said, "I, I said, I don't know, Jim. I, I don't know California. I, I'm coming from from Freehold, New Jersey, for goodness' sake. I'll stay at a hotel near the studio, I, I guess. You know, I didn't, I didn't know." And um, Jimmy says to me, "No, you're not." I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "You send me your itinerary, and I will pick you up at the airport." And you will stay with me and Wendy and the kids. Wendy doing is his, his wife. And and Aww. so not only did I get to do Star Trek the motion picture, as you know, Bob, I actually got to live mm-hmm. with Jimmy and the doings for mm-hmm. for a week. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about man. he was he, and he was just so Very gracious crazy. and it was so neat to think that this thirteen year old kid watching Star Trek, it was only eight years from the time that I was watching Star Trek for the first time at age thirteen. So the time that I met them became their friends, and then eventually made a, a film with them, which is you know, I'm, you know, I could not have written that script. Yeah, what an incredible experience! It was it was neat neat with being with him. Oh well, and you know everybody. Like, I used to think as a kid, Bob, that everybody in Hollywood that was in a show together or a film together were all good friends, and they all. You know, after the show, all hung around together and went out for dinner together, and and of course that's not the case. And some of them are good friends, and and some like to see each other once in a while, but that doesn't mean they're all like, okay, what are we, what are we all doing this weekend? You know, the whole Star Trek yeah. cast. It wasn't like that. But Jimmy was good friends with Grace Lee Whitney, and, and as as a result, so so was I. And one day, uh, you know, Wendy cooked dinner some nights. We went out, and one day, Grace Lee Whitney, who played Yeoman Rand. Invited us over to her house with her husband Jack Dale, and she made spaghetti and meatballs. And I swear to God, it's not because it was Gracie, but those were the best. And still, they are the they are the benchmark for every spaghetti and meatballs I have eaten since. And nobody can beat <laughs> the spaghetti and meatball dinner that, that Grace Lee Whitney Yeoman Rand uh, made for us. And it was so great that they had uh, brought her back. You know, because she was, I was only so glad. It was so great to see Rand. Yeah, it, it was yeah. so great to see her. Yeah, it was wonderful that they did, they did that. It was really because she was only in the first season, and you know you can yeah. all read the and books and there's lots of stories. I think she was only I'm in sorry. about thirteen episodes or so of the first yeah. season. Yeah, you know, but because they decided but Kirk has to be able to you know play the field. So, right, that was the problem. Know. He can't go. He can't go kissing every every green trollop on every planet, and then come back and have a girl back home. So it didn't make sense. But she made such an impact in that first season that I believed, until I learned more about Star Trek, that she was in every episode 
for the entire show. That's that's how strong her character is was to me, and she was was a beautiful dear lady, just wonderful. I miss her. Got choked yeah. up. Yeah, it was very emotional, Bob, watching that watching that film with you yesterday uh, on the big screen. Um, I had seen it on DVD, and I saw the new DVD release and the extended version, but I, I hadn't seen it on a big screen for a very long time. And it was emotional seeing these people who were close to me, who were friends, and, and know that they passed. And I, I got very choked up seeing seeing Gracie uh, on, on her scene because she was really special, and I, I miss them. Uh, they were not because they were Star Trek stars, but because they were real people who became friends, yeah. and, and I love them. Uh, and then I know James Dewan, you know, certainly had a special place in your heart. And, and I know that I had interviewed him twice. I, I saw him, I think, three times, maybe longer than that, maybe more than that. But, but I, I still remember one particular instance where I was at a convention in Newark, New Jersey, um, and simply called his hotel room. I don't know how I, I, I managed to get through. And... Instead of, you know, me coming up to his room, he said, oh, I'll come on down to you, which I was like, well, that's interesting. And here I had my little pocket tape recorder and my sheet yeah. of questions. I, I think I was doing it also for, for uh, you know, an, a legit, I, I say legit media uh, for the newspaper. But, of course, it, was, it wound up in our club, you know, the newsletter and the international course. magazine as well. But uh, just he was just so nice. Um, and I know one other time we, we, we did a video uh, of him at uh, – it was when, we, when my group was doing a, a cable access show called Spaced Out, and uh, we would go uh-huh. to different conventions and, and, and score um, interviews if, <laughs> you know, if we got lucky. And, um, you know, sometimes they, we didn't just tape them on stage. They, you know, they would consent to allowing us to, you know, put our little – you know, at that time, uh, pretty fat uh, digital cameras. You know, these were back in the days yeah. of VHF, and um, you know, set oh, up the tripod. And, how, how, yeah. oh, how quaint! <laughs> and then we would literally bring the VHS to the the, the uh, uh, station. Sometimes down the street to Seaside Heights here, and uh, sometimes all the way up in you know in Jackson Township. Uh, so uh, because they actually did trained us you know we, there was a, a, a class that we had but uh but yeah i did a cable show there for a while too that that's another story i know what you're talking about i did i did a pet show there for a while i hosted a adopted oh. pet, uh, tv show yeah out of when out of that out vision. of that jackson yeah studio when it was cable vision before it became comcast yes and, and it, yes yeah. yes and and the show was so good that they actually made copies and it went also on Cablevision before they were together, or they were, they were separate. It was Cablevision and Comcast, right? Is that what the two companies? Yeah, well, I think and Comcast it, and took them over. Um, I think Comcast took them over, and then there was – I don't know, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of was, work. Show, before it ran, it was, on both, it was on both stations, and it was because we, 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 we built a set there, and I had a uh, – we, we built two sets, and, and one – we actually had a – do all of my shots in one week, and then next week we brought in a veterinarian and did a veterinarian set, and he did little tips on different animals every week. It was a dog, it was a cat, it was a parrot, and and the show was was really good. And uh, I'm not saying that because I didn't produce it, but 
uh, the producer, Dave, uh, did a really wonderful job. And the show ran like 22 weeks on, on both stations. I don't recall how many episodes we did, but we did it for a few years. We tried to have at least one or two a month. And we only did one episode at the station because we just couldn't get, you know, match up to their schedule because we, we actually did have to work nine to five jobs and, and stuff. No, because we were um, using the studio. That's why you couldn't get in. <laughs> yeah, and, and they were using the studio. Yeah, they did news broadcasts and stuff like that. So we ended up shooting in, you know, the stereotypical my parents' basement where I had a bunch of autograph photographs and, and things like that in the backdrop. And we sat on uh, bar stools, you know, uh, myself, and uh, we had a couple of co-hosts. Um, a very pretty blonde uh, Karen was there. I think she was probably the most notable one. Um, and she and I would do the introduction of the segments. And then um, then we'd cut to the footage of, you know, from the conventions. Or occasionally we would have special guests at a at the comic book store at that time, it was based in, in Lakewood. Uh, and uh, we would do segments there as well. But um, yeah. And George was one of our, our guests as well. At, at, so James, George, we had some doctor who people. Yeah. That's, that's so, so neat. You, you were talking about, I was talking earlier about meeting these, these people. When I first met Jimmy, I was still, it was going to be the first convention that I was hosting in 74. And on the program was James doing it, and I was just like thrilled to meet him. And I was I was in college still at the time, and I would, when not studying, would be practicing doing his voice so I'd be ready to meet him. And I was like, pleased to meet you, Mister Dillon. Good to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, Scotty. How the good to see you, sir. And I'm getting ready to to do this voice this in for him as I met him. And one night I had been studying for a, for an exam. It was like three o'clock in the morning. I was done. So I went to the uh, to the washroom, you know, the, the the college dorm can, and I went in the little stall, and the, nobody was there. It's three o'clock in the morning. The echoes on the on the tiled walls just sounded great, and I'm practicing. I'm sitting there, you know, in in the stall, going, "Pleased to meet you, Mister Doing. Good to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, Mister Doing." And I said, "I think I I got it, Mister Doing. Good to meet you, sir." And just then. I heard the door open and saw a pair of, of slippers come in. And I recognized these corduroy slippers from my friend Lee, who lived across the hall. And he said, Stevie, I hope that's you in there, because if not, Scotty just beamed down to our crapper. And <laughs> at that moment, I... <laughs> true story. And at that moment, I knew I had the voice down. So now um, I'm at the convention. We checked into the hotel. They bring me up to the to the VIP meet and greet room where Jimmy's sitting in one of those those cushy you know armchairs and 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 doing you know saying hello to everybody and they brought me over and he's sitting down and I'm I kind of lean over and shake his hand and says please to meet you sir nice to meet you Mister Doing he goes hi Steve good, good to meet you you know it's like talk about having proverbial egg on your face that was that moment because <laughs> of course but we got to be friends but we got to be friends uh well he had certainly a uh, distinguished career and uh, seeing his son play Scotty on uh the Star Trek Continues fan uh series that's been produced uh, Chris, do, Chris doing Yeah yeah it's, yeah Chris it's a, was it's amazing. He had he had um, two sons and Chris and Chris and, and Monty 
and and Monty is his real name was Montgomery. You can guess where that name came from. And yeah. we all we were. If I was at the time twenty nine, twenty eight, Chris would be like twenty six. You know, he's a couple years younger than me. And Monty was was a teenager, eighteen, nineteen. I don't know exactly. Have to look that up. And we were riding in the car. We got up. You know, we had to get up at three o'clock in the morning in Van Nuys at Jimmy's house to get to the studio for makeup by six thirty. And we're all riding, and and I'm excited, of course, and 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 uh, Chris is excited, and Monty is just beside himself with excitement, so excited that Jimmy had to pull over, and Monty had to get out and and wretch. I decided a road on the way to the studio. That's how excited it was. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I, I know that watching that movie brought back so many memories for me of, of what I actually, you know, where I saw it and what I was doing at the time and how excited I was just to have them back. And this was before I got involved with fandom. Uh, this was a few years before all that, and you know, I I, I yeah. ended up I think seeing it by myself, but that was fine too. But um, but I think even though you know, I know it's it's not. I'm sorry, you didn't have any friends, Bob. <laughs> we didn't meet yet. We hadn't met yet. I would have went with you. I'm, I'm surprised. Sorry. I'm surprised I didn't see it with my friend Dave. I don't know what you know uh, because he would end up being on my being part of my club, and I knew him since middle school, but. I, I think we weren't really driving too well at that time, or at least if we had our license, you know, we, we were probably afraid to, to drive into that section uh, of Menlo Park area because the, the traffic was probably terrifying for a new oh, driver. Yeah, but, yeah. but, uh, but anyway, I, I remember, you know, just how exciting that, that period was. And, um, and, and, and really um, while it, it did make a tremendous amount of profit. I mean, it, it wasn't as critically received as they had hoped, but as we saw yesterday, um, you know, there were so many hands in the production of it. It was a miracle that it, it, it got completed at all. And, and, and that, yeah, I didn't meet any, I never met any of those people, only Roddenberry a couple of times briefly, uh, but none of those other folks that were involved in the production, uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I never, I never met them. But it, but it was certainly the first, you know, it reignited the um, the franchise. It was our first glimpse live because we had the animated episodes, you know, uh, in between. Um, I think that started in which were ter- which were terrific. Yeah, they were very and, and and they were incredibly well written because they were written by, you know, Star Trek uh, writers and. Uh, uh, people who yeah, knew DC Star- Fontana, David, David, DC Fontana, yeah. David Gerald, and David Gerald went on, by the way, to be this, the, the head writer for Land of the Lost, the TV series. Did you know that? Yeah. And and Gerald did that, and he brought on another writer to do an episode. His name was Walter Koenig, who I think I said Koenig when I first met him. Yeah. Uh, Walter as we know, it was Mr. Chekhov. And he wrote one of the most important episodes of those original Lands of the Lost. It was one when they were going to meet the head of the Slee Stack. The Slee Stack were those lizard-like creatures uh, on, the, yeah. lands of, on yeah. the Land of the Lost. And as a homage or homage, however you like to pronounce it, Walter 
wanted the head sleeve stack to be named Enig, E-N-I-G, or E-N-E-G. Uh, yeah, it was Gene Roddenberry's name spelled backwards, Gene backwards, G-E-N-E, so it was E-N-E-G. And they they liked it, but at the last minute, they changed it from Enig to Enik. And so the head sleeve stack is E-N-E-K instead of E-G, but that was Walter's intent when he did that. By the way, the uh, one of those sleeve stack costumes showed up uh, on Hannibal Smith in one of the A-Team episodes, if you want to see that. Oh, for that. Yeah. Well, D.C. Fontana stayed with um, with science fiction for a while. She was uh, She headed a show called Fantastic journey with uh jared martin and rod roddy mcdowell uh and yes. um and our favorite uh junior engineer scotty's nephew uh is his name ike isaacsman or i'm probably butchering that name but he would be the the poor engineer cadet who uh, stayed at his post uh in star trek 2 and and died but he was in that show um, and she was the story editor, and it, it was a very cool show. And unfortunately, it lasted all of thirteen episodes on, I think, NBC. But um, some shows, some shows were just too smart for for audiences. There was yeah. a a show, Schlatter and Friendly, who did, and we're off the Star Trek thing, kind of, not really. Schlatter and Friendly, who did uh, Laughing, which was, as we know, a huge, humongous hit show. After that, they had this other idea for a very quick show. Uh, not, not quick show, but the show had very quick skits. Instead of a long, drawn-out, you know, one- or two-minute skit or three-minute skit, they were just little vignettes that were very short, very quick. Uh, Chuck McCann was in it and some other people, and it was called Turn On, the show. And the credits ran throughout the show instead of, like, all at the beginning. It was like there'd be a credit, mm-hmm. and then there'd be a couple skits, there'd be another credit, and it was, it was very clever, very good. And it was so smart and so clever that it was off the air in one episode. So oh, that's that's TV. That's TV for you. Well, you know what DC Fontana went on to do of all things, she uh, went on to write a lot of episodes of of Dallas, which had another <laughs> connection to, to Star Trek. With Barbara Howard was a regular. Uh, the actor who played Punk Anderson was uh, Captain Tracy. He was. Tracy, you know, yeah, yeah he, he was in it. Uh, the the original actor uh, who played, well, the actor who played the original Zephram Cochran. Uh, oh, he was you wonderful. Know, how could it. they? How could they take that beautiful man from that episode, and then when they're casting the movie, the motion picture that had Zephram Cochran, they said, "Oh no, let let's go with the with with the Stretch Cunningham from All in the Family." You know, I mean, it, it wasn't even, you know, James Cromwell, Academy Award winner for doing the pig movie. Great. Glad to, good luck to him. But he was not the right guy to play Zephram Cochran. You know, I was very disappointed with that. And I, I, I believe the actor may, the original actor may have died by that point, by the time First Contact was filmed. I don't know, but I was very, when I what sat was there name, to watch Hunter, by any chance? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it was, I forgot what his name was. I'm being facetious, but, Bob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, that that triggered like I wish I knew his name because he was, you know, he was probably in a lot I wish of I had cast that. I wish I had cast that film. I don't know who I would put in the role, but not James Cromwell with that hook nose. I mean, compared no, to the except from Cochran, who was was truly a leading man, you know, character type, yeah. really. 
Yeah. He looked nothing like he him. Was, he was right up. No, he was right. Yeah, he was. He was. You know, right up there with Jeff Hunter. You know that that look. You know. Yeah. 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 He was definitely leading man material. Um, well, good. I'm glad we agreed on that. <laughs> Unfortunately, the poor guy's dead. But uh, yeah. But um, tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're doing these days. Um, and you know, you're you're doing this pilot. Uh, which you finished for Arthur Futuro. Tell tell us a little bit about that. Oh, that thank you for asking, Bob. Because that, that it is so cool. When when I think about what I'm doing, it it actually is every TV show and movie that I watched my whole life has finally come into play, and it's kind of neat. Uh, I am working uh, with a company called Jam Room Communications. They're in Howell, New Jersey. They are a part of, and we kind of split the business, I, I'm, I'm, I'm involved with this in a business standpoint, it was the Jam Room Music Complex, and they were producing bands and records and CDs, and they still are, but that kind of work very often happens in the evening with bands, and there was a lot of downtime, and I went to, uh, actually my, my publicist, Lisa, uh, said you ought to uh, get a new demo made, and she researched some studios, and I wanted one that had this microphone called a Neumann. It looks like Newman, but it's, it's Neumann. Hello, Neumann. And, but I wanted that <laughs> microphone because it's, a, it's an $8,000 microphone with a tube still in it, so it has a very warm sound. And it's the one that Mark Hamill uses when he does the voice of the Joker for the animated series. So as good a voiceover actor as you can be, when you have the equipment behind you, you sound even better. So we found a couple of studios that, that had that microphone and I went and did some quick audition tests with them to, to to see how they could react with a a voice actor. Most of these studios are very local studios. I'm talking about Mammoth in Ocean County, uh New Jersey, are, are used to doing music. They're not used to doing voice work. They're not used to doing commercials and that kind of stuff. So it was unusual and, and I, I liked the people at the other studios. But when I went into the jam room uh, Arnie Brown, the producer, is, is sitting at the board, and I'm in the little vocal booth, and you see him through the window, and you got the headphones on, and, and you can, you know, he says, okay, you know, take, take one, you know, and then you can go ahead and do the take. And even though I am an actor, and also I can direct Bob, if you were to do something, I could direct you. But when you're doing something yourself, it, it's very hard to self-direct. I mean, you do the best you can. But somebody, a third party listening to you can hear things that you can't. So I'm doing this – one of the cuts for a commercial I was doing was a cowboy kind of voice, and it's very similar to the one I'm doing for Arthur Vichero, which is why it came up. And uh, I'm doing a voice, and I go, you know, come to Frank's Restaurant and Pizza. It was for a, a, a restaurant in, in Maryland, actually. And he said, uh, cut. Uh, Steve, do it again and, and make the voice a little gruffer. And, and I go up to the microphone. And I go, what, what, what did you just say? And, and now, now he's afraid that I'm offended. I said, I said no, no, no. You're the – you're the only engineer who has been able to direct me, and we became friends. And then I asked him, you know, what do you do during the day? He says, you know, I edit tapes and you know music and stuff. I said, I think there's another business here, and we we started this Jam Room Communications. And the first job that we got was to do the sound design for a pilot of a TV show called Arthur Futuro. It's produced by Great Mustachio Filmworks. Um, the pilot will not be on TV. Uh, it's called a proof of concept pilot. The show is produced, 
and then this is what's used to sell the show, and then it, it's going to all the all the kid networks. It's a it's a tween kind of show, so it's going to Nickelodeon, uh, Disney, you know, kids, uh, you know, Universal Kids. Those those kinds of networks are are going to be looking at it, and I'm very sure that one of them will pick up the show, and then they'll say, oh, we we like this uh, that teacher we want to replace and recast, and and we don't like the voice of the PA announcer, which, which is me doing that voice, you know. Uh, hey Jessica, tie your shoe, you know that kind of thing. And <laughs> the, the, the whole the whole sound design came out of that because originally I was just hired to do the voice, and they didn't have a real sound studio. They were you know doing this pilot, doing this pilot on a shoestring, and they said, well, just come up to the, the producer has a little studio set up in his in his in his house, and I go, well, you know, I I got a full blown studio with a Neumann microphone. Why don't you come there? And and uh, we we won't charge you for the studio time, and I'll just do the voice. And they saw what we were doing there, and said, "We want you guys to do the sound design." And that's how it that's how it came out. So, besides doing the voice, uh, which shows up four times in the show, um, I actually directed all of the sound, all the foley, all the ADR. Uh, you can hear me doing push-ups in the gym scene with the other kids that were doing push-up foley. Uh, we actually did push-ups. We actually lowered the microphone to the floor. And four of us, I, I have other Foley actors, and each of us did push-ups while watching it on the, you know, on the screen so we could match it. Because when they filmed that background stuff, if people don't know, it's not like your home VHS recorder, Bob, like you used. If you record somebody, mm-hmm. interview, if you're interviewing somebody at a bar or at a restaurant, all the sound in the background is going to come up. And when they film right. a TV show or a movie, everybody in the background pretends that they're drinking and talking and having a good time and clinking glasses. And they're actually not making any any sound at all, and that includes the kids doing the push-ups. So the two actors wow. that were mic'd are the only thing that's actually recorded. Then we go back, and we put in all that sound. We put in the sound effect. They throw the gym ball to the gym teacher, and he's a big, strong guy, and he's a Russian, big, strong Russian man, and, and he squeezes the ball, and the ball pops, and the air comes out of it. We had to come up with a way to create that sound so it really sounded like the ball, the soccer ball popped and the air came out of it. Uh, in order to get the air coming out, by the way, uh, we used, we tried a lot of things. We tried balloons. We tried real soccer balls. It turned out the producer's idea was take a pen and, and, and take your pen apart. I go, that's my favorite pen, you know. He said, take the pen apart and, and just take the end off it and take the, you know, the ink out of it and blow through the through the fat part of that end of the pen so the air is going through the little tiny hole and then you heard this and it was the perfect sound and that's how we did the foley for the for the sound and it was just a lot of fun doing that and we all did push-ups and had to watch the scene and even though even though you wouldn't make a sound when you do a push-up you have to imagine that you would so you have to actually do the push-up and then act at yeah. the same time you know so you you really you could do a push-up without grunting or going but you have to say, okay, I'm going to act, but I'm also going to go through the motions so you get the right feel of it. And and it was great. And we finished uh, the sound design on the on the pilot, uh, Arthur Fitchero. And you can look that up, people, uh, folks, if you go to IMDb. Uh, you can go to my page. Just type in Stephen Lance, and you'll see me at a microphone. And you can read my credits and click on the Arthur Fitchero, and that will take you to the Arthur Fitchero website. And uh, please uh, keep your fingers crossed. Uh, we, we don't even have to cross our fingers. It's so good. The show is so superior. Uh, it's not a matter cool. of if it's going to sell. It's just a matter of which network's going to win. And that, that's how confident we are. So I'm real excited about, about doing that. 
And uh, That's cool. we're doing some, some animation stuff now. So, you know, sound for animation and voices. So I'm having a lot of fun behind the scenes. And I really prefer to be off camera. I mean, nobody stops me at, at McDonald's and says, oh, weren't you that alien? Because yeah, I'm wearing the heavy makeup. So it's not like <laughs> I get stopped on the street for being famous. And I, I prefer to do voices because I can play with my voice differently than you can on camera. I can make silly faces or I have to make silly faces sometimes to get the the sound out. Like if I do my sure. Popeye uh, walking down the street singing, Bob, it would sound like uh, <laughs> But when I do that, it sounds like Popeye. But if you were here with me, you would see that I actually have to take my fingers on my on my own throat and then move it up and down on my Adam's apple to get that vibrato. And and Kenny, uh, what, what's his name? Does uh, SpongeBob, uh, Bob? Uh, I forgot his name. First name. Uh, something Kenny. Who knows? Yeah, but, who did this? I, I forgot his I first name. Bob, even when though does, I have the name. When he does, <laughs> when he does uh, SpongeBob, I saw him once do it, and he actually does. <laughs> And then he makes his hand flat as if you're going to slap somebody on the back. And he puts that up against the bottom of his chin. And he goes, ah, and that's how he gets the SpongeBob laugh. You can't do that on camera. So you get to play and create voices and sounds uh, that are magical and sound right when you see the cartoon or you watch the show. But people don't actually see you creating it. And, and I enjoy that even more than, than being on camera. Oh, I know you do. And you do a, a spectacular job with it. And, and you have fun with it. And that's the important and thing. If, if you don't like what you do, do something else. You know, that's what I always say. Exactly. Um, Hercules, I know we've pretty much stolen the show away from you tonight. Uh, no, you no, no, the intention today was to let you fly, and you flew, and this has been an excellent uh, episode. Um, Stephen is an awesome guest, and I learned a lot. You're an awesome interviewer, so uh, nothing was stolen. I was sitting back uh, listening, yeah. and I had a great time. Well, well this I is great, and I because you're you're in the same age range. I know. Where, where I was curious when you you know when and where you saw Star Trek the motion picture for the first time. Um, I read the book and I was expecting something very different. The book was kind of R-rated. And uh, mm -hmm. um, I had heard the stories about uh, Roddenberry set and the things going on. And I was wondering if that was the new direction for Star Trek. It was going to be like Star Wars, but rated R. Uh, so initially <laughs> when I started, I was disappointed because they cut all that stuff out of the, uh, the movie. But uh, then I saw it a few times and uh, it kind of grew on me like the first Conan film. Uh, it, it, it grows on you, but it's not Conan you know, if you're a Conan purist. So I felt the same way about yeah. the, uh, the Star Trek movie. Yeah, no, uh, there there are many Herc different. Herc would go on to become a, a big when he joined Star Trek fandom. It was as a Klingon, so that had yeah. to be an exciting, you know. Yeah, well, moment that, that's why I got you. the R. Yeah, Bob, I never told you that's why I got the R rating when I was in the in the uh, in the uh, scene on the rec deck. I actually gave a Klingon the finger, and that's why I got the R rating. <laughs> they, 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 they cut that. No, I didn't. I made that up. I, I didn't do that. Well, listen, I'd be glad to come back and talk about Hercules. I'm a huge fan of all the all the Italian Hercules films with Steve Reeves and Mark Forrest and the, the Sons of Hercules and, of course, Me the too. animated series. 
the trans the trans Lux cartoons with with uh, you know Newton and Daedalus and the guy with the can yeah. on his head. I don't remember what was that villain. What was the villain with the? He had to. He was like a knight I, of some sort. But he had like a like the black knight. He had like a, it looked like a tin can on his head. I think it was, but I'm, I don't remember his name. It's been a while since I yeah. watched his cartoons. But synchronistically, I was thinking about the cartoon the other day. Uh, and wondering whether to include uh, my like of it into uh, my bio, and then I left it out. Uh, but I love the the spaghetti sword and sandal movies. Uh, they were awesome, and we have uh, three shows devoted just to that. So that's how awesome I find them. Yeah, I well, just it, recently, for for no reason at all, something something must have sparked. I must have heard something or seen something, and I actually watched Hercules, the original Steve Reeves Hercules film, uh, uh-huh. just last week. And I got to see it in widescreen in color. And when I used to watch it on Channel 9, it was all crammed in. Very, everyone was very tall and skinny because they, they, they crammed the cinemascope into the, uh-huh. into the regular format and, and black and white. So I had never seen it the way it was shown. And, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the film. And, and I want to see Hercules Unchained maybe this weekend and, and then go back and see the Sons of Hercules series. So I, I'm, I really do love um, that, whole, that whole genre. I do. Well, Steve shares another love that uh, that we have, but he's uh, really, really into it, and that is his uh, devotion to the TV series The Adventures of Superman. So, yeah. I actually spent time with Lois Lane, Noel Neal, and Jack Larson, and my my uncle is Robert Chain, who played uh, – Inspector Henderson, the real Inspector Henderson, not the, you know, not the whoever played him on the, you know, the, the TV show, um, the later TV show, but Robert Chain. Uh, great stories I have about about those folks too. Also, Bob, I don't want to forget, but I am writing my my um, my memoir ah, about these, yes. about these Star Trek about these Star Trek days. And if any fans are out there listening to us today that were in attendance. At those early conventions in New York or even Philadelphia or Atlanta, uh, I would like them to write to me because I, I'd like to hear what you saw and what you remember from the other side of the stage for this memoir. And uh, I figure it's going to take about a year to write it, and then you know I don't know how long it takes till they actually get the book out. Uh, but if you uh, want to write to me, it's easy. It's Stephen Lance at Juno dot com. It's that simple, and I'd love to hear from you. I will and if you send me a self-addressed, if you send me a self-addressed stamped envelope to that, well, write to me and then give me an address. I will send you a Star Trek autograph with me, Jimmy, and and Grace Lee. The picture you can see on my IMDb page. I'll be glad to send you one of those. That is awesome, and thank you very much. I, I know you mentioned your IMDb and now your uh, uh, email address. Is there any other um, location where people can go online to enter your world? Well, certainly, I'd love people to visit if they're, especially if they're animators and filmmakers uh, working on independent films. I'm on the the committees for the uh, Garden State Film Festival, and oh, right wow. this year we're going to we're going to pick we're going to pick uh, the best animated short, and we are going to do we meaning Jam Room Communications has agreed to give a gift to uh, the winner, and we will do the entire sound design, the voices, the music, the sound effects for their next animated short. So that's something you may want to look at. So look at uh, Jam Room Communications. It's uh, just www. Uh, you don't have to say that anymore, do you? Uh, Jam Room, J-A-M-R-O-O-M, 
www.gsfff.communications.com, and there's a button on there that should say uh, GSFF, uh, and when you find that, that's the uh, the animation award instructions, and uh, you can enter that. Certainly, uh, if you have any questions about sound, sound design like that, please feel free to read me or reach me there uh, on Jam Room with just Steve at jamroomcommunications.com. And I'll gladly help spread the word. Uh, if uh, um, Bob, if you can uh, email uh, these things to me, I'll gladly uh, post them and remind people so that uh, it's out there. I know I have a Absolutely. lot of uh, Star Trek memories. I'm sure many people I know do as well. So I will ask around. I'll yeah, if they face- were at those conventions, if they were at those conventions, that's really what what I'm interested in. Uh, oh, by the way, I, I, my publicist who's here with me, just Lisa, thank you. She just reminded me on the website. It's GSFF, which stands for Garden State Film Festival. And every year I, I host one or more films. It's uh, On the website, it says GSFF Jammy Award. So it's, it's named the Jammy for Jam Room. And you can click on that and, and learn all about the Jam or Jammy Award uh, for animation. And hopefully uh, somebody out there in your listening audience uh, is going to win. Lisa, can you send these to me, and I'll make sure that uh, I share them. Uh, my uh, I will, Bob yes, my email, so you can just communicate with me through Bob. We'll have her uh, do that uh, diligence uh, after after we uh, close out tonight. Thank you. You cool. guys were awesome. I, I enjoyed this very much. And, uh, Bob, we have to have you hosting much more often. This was an awesome uh, show. Thank you. Thank you again for giving me the opportunity. Well, it was real it was nice awesome. and, and real easy. It's real easy talking to somebody that you've known for 30 years. Is that how long we've known each other, Bob? Just wow. about, I believe. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it's not like, uh, you know, I'm sitting here uh, in, in my Star Trek uniform with the bald head uh, while I'm talking to you. I didn't know it. I, did, I didn't know this wasn't a video chat. I'm, I'm sorry I went through all that process uh, to do that. But uh, no, well, Bob and I have <laughs> – We're growing in that direction. So by year's end, we're going to have a video uh, show as well. Right now we're working on it. So uh, um, I I guess I'll warn you ahead of time, and uh, you can put those things back on. All right. Well, either that or I'll do the Hercules show, wear a toga, because I'm very well built. uh, Very cool. I wear one on time uh, as well. No, I I am built like Don Knotts from from Andy Griffith's show. That's that's really (laughs) – I won't wear a toga. He's from that era, so (laughs) – Well, thank Although you I very much. Once, you're welcome. I was going to say I did once wear a toga in a show I, I with with uh, Henny Youngman, and that's for another show. That's all. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, until next time, joyous journeys and amazing uh, adventures. Uh, Bob, thank you. You're awesome. And uh, we're going to take a brief uh, music break and listen to Merlin Am I by Dave the Bard. And then we'll be back with the scholars from the edge of time, Michelle Brittany and Nicholas Dyack.
shines like the sun from his eyes. His father, God of the earth, holds his mother in his arms as she dies. Is my 
Greetings and welcome back to Voice of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus and I am greatly honored to announce Michelle, Brittany, and Nicholas Dyack, the scholars from the edge of time. Greetings and welcome. Greetings, Hercules. How are you this evening? I'm doing incredibly awesome. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm hoping to live up to that wonderful introduction. <laughs> you, you you always do and surpass it. You and Nicholas are awesome. Oh, well, thank you so much. We we think highly of you as well. Thank you. Um, I've been following you guys on uh, Facebook. Uh, you guys have been doing lots and lots of interesting and exciting stuff uh, recently. Yeah, we, we definitely have. In fact, I was jotting a few notes before um, joining the podcast this evening and realized, wow, what a what a busy summer, um, you know, because we've been doing um, some special guests uh, over the past couple of months. And uh-huh. so we focused more on bringing guests on and um, – thought that this would be a good time to kind of catch up with the end of summer, uh, with autumn just around the corner. Um, thought this was a good time to kind of uh, look back at stuff that we've been working on as well as projects that we have coming up. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to hearing about it all. Yeah. So um, I guess I, what I could do is do a quick rundown. Um You know, part of the thing, uh, I wear many hats, as you know. um, Yes, you do. And and that includes, you know, what we do here uh, on the podcast and interviewing guests. But it also, um, I work as an editorials manager for a Southern California publisher called Fanbase Press. And so I'm often doing... Uh, conventions and things like that and of course summertime is always hectic uh, for those types of activities Uh, I was at the uh, San Diego Comic Con uh, in July in August I went to PowerCon which is dedicated to all things uh, Masters of the Universe and Princess of Power oh wow Um, yeah um, and I think what I'll do is I'm going to defer over to Nick because that's really within his wheelhouse. But I will say that um, this was the second year that we attended, and I always feel very welcome at that con um, and also feel that even though I don't know a lot about both of the IPs, I've been learning a little bit uh, each time that I go and try to do some prep work before we go, but I always feel like it's a it's a very welcoming con. It's very family oriented, very down to earth, um, and it's just kind of you don't have to know a lot to really enjoy the con. And um, so we were there for that. We were covering. Uh, I did a kind of an an overview article, whereas Nick uh, actually covered a specific panel. And then I also did uh, a photo gallery over at Fanbase Press for the event as well. Um, August, we also went to Midsummer Scream. Um, I am, in addition to doing 
uh, fan-based prep. I also uh, have a deep interest uh, in mummies. And so uh, because this was a uh, horror-related con, and it's very popular uh, here in Southern California, it's held at Long Beach. I actually don't know how many years it has been running, but this was the first year that we went. And I found lots of wonderful mummy things. Um, so that was quite exciting and got to catch up with people that I see in the regular pop culture con. Um, and then we uh, went to the Long Beach uh, comic book con. Um, I think actually like a couple of weeks ago, uh, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, I and then I, you and Nicholas post, uh, I appreciate that you and Nicholas post pictures of, uh, uh, your adventures at these conventions. Uh, uh I miss the uh, convention going days and they'll be coming back within a year for me. Uh, but in the interim, uh, I can enjoy a uh, convention going vicariously <laughs> through your pictures. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, when we went to Long Beach, neither one of us were really working. Uh, you know, we weren't doing any coverage, so it was actually nice to just kind of relax and go as professionals and uh, enjoy the con. Uh, and that was, I think that was kind of our last con for the season. Um, one of the other things that I do because of my interest in uh, ancient Egypt and that's mm-hmm. really what drew, drew me to uh, your channel and becoming uh, friends with you and, uh, you know, developing this podcast is that interest in uh, mummies. And so I actually attended a couple of meetings through the American Research Center of Egypt. Um, I'm a member of the Orange uh, chapter. And that is such a fascinating group. Um, It was, I feel very fortunate. We get a lot of different guests. um, And in August, we actually had two, uh, two separate guests on two different weekends. Uh, The first one was Dr. Shirley, who talked about, um, the uh, uh, Sebian uh, Tomb 110, which is uh, out at Queen Hatshepsut uh, Plaza. And um, the other uh, lecture that I saw last month was with Dr. Mark Lerner. And uh, he, people might actually recognize his name. He's done research out at the uh, Pyramids of Giza for, um, I believe, almost 50 years. He has a very big book called Giza and the Pyramids uh, that he co-wrote with uh, Dr. Um, Kawaz, uh, mm-hmm. who I actually got to um, I think, in June. Uh, so, yeah, those were both great lectures, um, and I can talk a little bit more about those uh, in a little bit. The other thing that I've been doing is actually a lot of reading. Um, I write reviews and um, kind of through Nick's association with the um, Edgar Rice Burroughs group in Tarzana, okay. California, um, we are starting to kind of connect with them and become involved. And uh, at the San Diego Comic-Con, they actually announced 
uh, that they were developing a brand new series in uh, next year that's to interconnect all botanical novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs, but they also um, are going to be bringing in new writers that are going to work within the canon. And um, I think that that is just very, very exciting. We're very anxious Mm. to get a chance to kind of deep dive into that whole universe. Um, I uh, received a book from them. Uh, They re-released, and I would think, um, Hercules, that you might actually know this book. It's uh, by Fritz Lieber. It's Tarzan and the Valley of Gold. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know if I still have that, but I remember it, yes. Yeah. So, um, I did you see the movie? It's been a while since I've uh, watched the Tarzan movie, um, but uh, I was very much into Edgar Rice Burroughs, and I, I still have a lot of the Edgar Rice uh, Burroughs books, even the ones that aren't uh, um uh, that aren't uh, Pellucidar or Mars or Venus or, you know, the, 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 like Sword and Planet. Um, but no, I didn't see the movie. It, did they make that particular book into a movie? They did. And actually, um, it's actually the other way around. Uh, Fritz Lieber uh, wrote this novel based on the script that had been written by Claire Huff, I think Huffaker or Huffaker, um, who wrote the script and had been very much influenced by, interesting <laughs> and probably not too surprising, but the spy genre. Um, <laughs> so, like, so they had a lot of in, influence by like the James Bond films of the 1960s. And um, Chris Lieber um, basically pulled in a a lot of that from the film and from the script, as well as adding um, new scenes uh, to his book. I read it and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, in part, I'm a, a big James Bond, uh, James Bond fan. Um, I'm a, my, my first edited book is about James Bond and his influence. Yeah. And um, so this, one of the things that uh, the Edgar Rice Burroughs group did is that they have officially um, brought this book into the canon. It's now an official part of the canon. They re-released the book uh, because it had only been released back, uh, I think, in like 1966. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, re-released it into a very nice hardcover it is uh, illustrated by um, the cover art is by Richard Hescock, and then there's interior illustrations by a Douglas Clauba. Uh, Not familiar with either of them, um, but I thought that the illustrations within the book were nicely done. There weren't a lot of them, so it didn't mm-hmm. really like, you know, really. Uh, stretch your own imagination with regards to the the various themes as you you know read through the novel. Um, there were two other books actually um, that they 
also kind of brought into the universe um, that were not written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, and that is, and you may you may know these uh, Mahars of Pelusadar. Pelusadar, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure and, they have. Yep, and then the other one was Tarzan and the Dark Heart of Time by uh, Philip Jose Farmer. So those that are one now, I'm not sure. Yeah, so these are now part of the official Edgar Rice Burroughs expanded universe um, that were written, you know, many, many decades ago. Um, but I know that uh, I would definitely suggest um, this book. I like I said I enjoyed it. Um, there's definitely, you know, there's a little bit of challenges with regards to to gender studies. I will say that up front. Um, you know, there's only a couple of women in the the story, right? And they do take a more uh, like the main um, the main female protagonist uh, kind of starts out bad, becomes good, um, and she's I would never say that she's a femme fatale, um, but maybe at the very beginning she kind of flirts with that. Uh, she's definitely more the damsel in distress uh, the further you get into the story. Um, but I did find it interesting. Um, I'll be honest, I had watched um, a couple of Tarzan films over the years, mm-hmm. but I, I really engaged with Tarzan since I was a kid. Um, but I I did really think that the Lieber did a really nice job, not just kind of explaining uh, Tarzan um, and his kind of slow down uh, aging and why he he's like kind of superhuman in a way. Um, but he also endows Tarzan with a lot of uh, introspection. Like he uh-huh. thinks about like, why he doesn't, um, why he's so adverse to guns and violence, uh, which I thought was very interesting for 1960s to, you know, convey those kind of thoughts. I thought that was actually very interesting and, and kind of counter to a lot of the stories and genres of the time. Like you were speaking with your guests in the prior hour talking about the spaghetti westerns and kind of, uh-huh. you know, uh, all that's kind of related to that. And, you know, those were kind of violent back then. And so it's interesting that Lieber was looking at violence and giving Tarzan pause to think about those and, and really kind of give thought to why he was questioning it, why he felt the way that he did, which I think was actually very interesting um, because, you know, so much of that particular time was very masculine and and to give kind of another complexity to Tarzan, particularly at that time when Tarzan was kind of going through – a change as far as uh, on with regards to cinema because you had a mm-hmm. new director that was um, conveying or kind of playing within the Tarzan sandbox, I would say. Uh, so I think that that was very, 
very interesting. Yes, it is. And uh, uh, a lot of uh, the material written at that time was very progressive for its time, even though we see it now as very regressive and, uh, um, uh, you know, basically politically incorrect. Uh, back when it was written, uh, it, it wasn't perceived that way at all. So uh, uh, a lot of uh, the opinions that we have about literature in different times is uh, based on today's sensibilities and not what the sensibilities were when the material was written. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a very good point, Hercules, because I had to, you know, I would keep thinking about, well, I have to consider – you know, what was the time frame, what was what was the sensibilities of the 1960s, particularly since this was written, would have been written in 65, 66, you know, this is precursor to, you know, 68, 69, Woodstock, uh, you know, Summer of Love, things like that. Um, but I also think that it, I think it's, it's a good thing to read and understand that time as a way of of comparing what we were then, where are we now, what kind of, where have we moved ahead in our thought right. processes, in society, what, what's, I don't want to say acceptable, but what, you know, how have we grown as a society, you know, now looking, uh, what, 50 years on versus that time. And I, I know I know there are people out there who will say, I'm, I would not read that, you know, because that's not within my thought process or what right. I believe in. But I think that does a disservice because I think it's important to understand our history and then from there look at making those comparisons. Where have we grown? Where is there room for us to improve going forward? It's always like, you know, we learn from our history, right, or we're doomed to repeat right. it. I think this is a, is a great example of where we can look at what was written in the past, what, what was this universe, and particularly in light of the fact that this universe is going to be expanding next year, um, I think it will be very exciting. Um, the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs um, website has a lot of information about their coming expanded universe. They've done a lot of uh, press releases around it. Um, there's interviews um, at some of the different websites, um, particularly um, I'm trying to remember his name. Oh, gosh. Uh, Christopher Paul Carvey, um, or I think, no, Carey, uh, C-A-R-E-Y. He's done interviews with, with some of the other uh, podcasts and websites out there, uh, blogs and things like that, talking about the expanded universe, how it will all fit. And I think it's very exciting. I, I'm very anxious to see what they're going to come come up with and how it's going to fit and what what will it say about our society today. Wow, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you should invite some folks from uh, the Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, um, website uh, and interview them here on the show it would certainly fit into the theme and uh, I think that would make a very exciting show oh yeah I totally agree uh, Nick and I have a whiteboard and they're, they're up on our list of people that we would love to um, have on, on our show 
uh, and interview them and talk to them. Hopefully, um, maybe like early next year, uh, because I That's think awesome. the first. Yeah, I think the first book will come out. Uh, I think maybe in February. Uh, don't hold me to that, but um, I think it's going to be very early next year. And there have been graphic novels uh, coming out, comic books before, you know, that are made into graphic novels, and uh, also Modiphius that uh, released uh, new Conan and Star Trek role-playing games uh, is also releasing or has released the John Carter role-playing game. So the future looks very okay. interesting for Edgar Rice Burroughs fans. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I honestly, I, I was just kind of blown away by the fact that here's a person that started writing this universe, and to have so much forethought to write all these different universes and then tie them together. I mean, and I, I'm just too. He did that in the books too. He he tied the books together in the books themselves uh, by making like small references here or there. So he did have this uh, multiverse uh, through his literature. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually very anxious to start going through. Um, I have a have uh, the first volume of uh, John Carter of Mars. I know that we've talked about that in um, probably mm-hmm. oh, probably like six months ago now, but. Um, yeah, I'm anxious to to kind of dig back into that. I it's I just always find I, I just think he was so forward thinking in being able to basically kind of wrap his mind around of where he wanted to plug in and make references. I'm always just you know in awe and, and slightly jealous. Slightly <laughs> jealous. You're 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 very creative and. Uh... Uh, you're building uh, uh, a body of literature, and uh, you're, you're still young, so you have like, uh, you know, like lots of literature uh, being channeled through you still. So I'm sure you could accomplish something that awesome. Well, I'm I'm hoping to do so, and I appreciate um, your your encouragement and positivity. Um, yeah, I'm I'm hoping uh, that that's going to be coming uh, down the road. So um, I know we only have a couple more minutes, and I was hoping that I could plug uh, something else that I have been reading and hoping to. It's been out for a while, um, Uh but while I was at Long Beach Comic Con, I am friends with a writer. His name is DJ Kirk Fry, and he uh, wrote a book. I think this was late last year and um, I'm a little slow coming to the party with regards to finally getting a copy. Um, Oh, it actually came out in late 2017, but it's called The Once and Future Queen. Um, It was a uh, comic book series uh, collected into a trade paperback from Dark Horse Comics. Um, It uh, plays on the uh, King Arthur mythology and sets it in a contemporary setting uh, with uh, King Arthur uh, character uh, being portrayed by a woman who is a uh, lesbian and uh, it 
I think that Kirkbride and his co-writer Adam Nave did. Yeah, Nave. K N A B E. The art and covers by Nick Brokenshire, and letters by Frank Sevek. Let's see, Sevek Kovic. Um, they've all worked together before. Um, it's it's a wonderful series. Um, it really plays with the mythology, gives it a great twist, sets it in contemporary times. Um, and I think it's definitely worthwhile for any of the listeners that have an interest in uh, King Arthur and that mythology. I think this is a, a, a fabulous read um, and gives it kind of an updated modern, modern look and feel. Um, I included a link to it uh, on uh, my uh, timeline, and I also included links to the Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, .com website and to uh, Fanbase Press. Uh, so folks oh, who are following on Facebook can link directly and explore these things. And if I missed anything, please feel free to add it there. Okay, sounds great. Well, I know that we're up for our half hour, and I know Nick is anxious to come and chat about his project as well as uh, talk a bit about PowerCon and what that was all about. So, Hercules, thank you so much uh, for your time and for being such a gracious host to us every month. And thank you for your time and being such an awesome uh, guest. I look forward to next month. Um, and uh, thanks uh, a lot. I enjoyed this segment very much. Oh, thank you, Hercules. And here is Nick. Greetings, Nick. How are you? Hey, Hercules. Uh, I'm actually getting over a cold, so I might sound a little bit more uh, uh, congested than normal. That's okay. I had one last week, so uh, uh, Monday's show sounded uh, horrible. I sounded like a, a frog, <laughs> but we got Aww. through it. You sound, you sound really well uh, compared to how I sounded, so onwards. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, speedy recovery for you. I'm glad that uh, things are going uh, great for you. And I'm glad that other than being sick, things are going great for you. You've been very busy, I, I can see from Facebook. Yeah, I've made a little bulleted list of, uh, as Michelle was saying earlier, since our last couple uh, get-togethers was uh, interviewing other folks, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, uh, the last couple months uh, I've kind of cranked out a lot of stuff here. So uh, a lot of it's just kind of like really small potato type stuff. You know, I'm hoping to start some uh, bigger cool. projects. But uh, let's see. Well, I'll just kind of work backwards. So. Fresh off the presses uh, today, I got the, the newest issue of the Tiki magazine, uh, Exotica Modern, and I've contributed an article to every issue so far. So, awesome. you know, that. Um, I did an interview uh, with a, a writer named uh, Will Penny. Uh, he wrote a comic book called uh, Tiki Surf Witches Want Blood. <laughs> and, uh, the, the 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 comic is not as lurid as the title. Just in a you know classic you know bait and switch. It's more of a you know a, a comedy uh, romp of you know uh, you know two guys land on a 
you know, island full of uh, tiki witches, and you know, every couple pages is a uh, recipe for a different cocktail. So it's it's a you know kind of a throwback to uh, you know exploitation movies like uh, you know uh, uh, what's that Wild Women of Wongo and uh, yeah, some of those yeah. uh, beach. So that was a fun interview. So it's um, that was good to do. They that company uh, that Will and his company released uh, a set of zombie glasses. Which uh, you know, change color and be a zombie when you fill it with a, a cocktail. So I had Very to get cool. one of those. <laughs> Thank you for um, the Romulan ale recipe, by the way. Uh, next time I have a, a Star Trek get together, we'll definitely um, experiment with that. You know, I saw that uh, online a couple days ago. There's a, a a cocktail channel I watch. I watch a couple of them, but this one is called uh, How to Drink. And they did okay. this uh, rundown of how to drink Romulan ale. But in the dialogue of that, someone had posted that um, – this is way before my time. I guess over in Vegas, they had a, a Star Trek experience, and it had a bar inside. And someone posted all the recipes for all these Star Trek Very cocktails. Cool. I want to go through them and try them out. I'm afraid that some of them are probably going to kick my butt. But, you know, I'm I'm always kind of interested to see the world of, uh, you know, Star Trek and cocktails uh, come together. Um, it's kind of cool that someone preserved the uh, recipes from that, because I don't think the Star Trek experience is around anymore. I don't think so either. And that, and that is an interesting way of experiencing uh, uh, the franchise, <laughs> certainly. But you know what, though, if you think about it, usually when – something really hits the pop culture mainstream, what usually happens, you have this cottage industry of people that write, you know, you know, unauthorized books that go with it. You know, here's a, a guide to this and a book for that. You know, right. You know, what right. usually comes recipe books, like Game of Thrones, you know, hey, here's how to make all the dishes from Game of Thrones. And, you know, Star Wars, here's a cookbook to how to cook Star Wars style and, you know, Star Trek itself. So I think it's kind of neat when something hits that zenith that, you know, instead of just watching the movie or the TV show or playing a video game, that you could um, partake in some sort of uh, uh, tangible craft of sorts that, you know, has a, an association with it. In this case, you know, cooking and drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, what else is going on? Uh, I did my revisions on my Peplum Elements in the original Westworld uh, movie. Oh, awesome. Uh, the, feedback, uh, the feedback I got from my editor was I did need to bring in uh, the television show into my essay, which is kind of hard to do because, well, the television show doesn't have any, um, well, peplum elements in it. But I was right. able to make it work. One of the cool uh-huh. things I did was, uh, if you remember from my peplum book, there's a an essay in it by Tatiana Porokova about meet the Spartans and, you know, how masculinity is portrayed as artificial and uh, plastic. And uh-huh. So, like, okay, so, you know, I'll start. So I wind up quoting her essay in my book and bringing in uh, examples from uh, the TV show about that, uh, because there's always these repeated images from the TV show of like the robots being built in some sort of like white liquid bath. And so, you know, they look, well, plastic, like plastic figurines, and so, mm-hmm. so I was able to get it to work. So even though 
the TV series lacks the sword and sandal elements. I was able to use it to plug some gaps in the, the original film. So, so that was turned in. So that should be published next year. So that's kind of cool. I get to continue my, you know, sandal scholarship. Um, What's what going on? That is a good thing, and you're becoming the voice of um, you know modern uh, peplum. You've uh, broken new territory and uh, um, new ground, and have altered the way that uh, uh, we view these things. So uh, your name has already uh, uh, some historical uh, echo uh, because you opened this door, and you're continuing to open the door. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, there's a, another sword and sandal opportunity that kind of came up, and I don't know if I'll pursue it or not just because my timeline is really bad for it, but I found mm-hmm. out there's another scholar. Her name's uh, Rachel Carzo, and she's doing a, a collection of essays to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Gladiator. Oh, wow. And, uh yeah, I reached out to her. Uh, her. Her book, her call for papers had already closed. And so I just reached out to her. Hey, you know, do you need someone to help, you know, promote this, review it? You know, because I'm all about trying to, you know, promote the neo-peplum genre. Yeah. And she said she'll get back to me later. But she said, hey, you know, uh, if you want to crank out an essay in the next two months uh, for consideration. And so I'm on the fence about that. I just don't know if I can turn in another high quality essay in such a short amount of time, but mm-hmm. I was thinking about, um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Um, you know, I listen to a lot of industrial music and industrial bands. One of the things they do is they sample dialogue from movies. And there's actually a handful of bands that sampled, uh, some of the dialogue from gladiator and incorporated it into their music. Wow. So I thought you know, that there might be a cool essay there. It's just, I don't know what my framework would be, and I don't know, you know, how in the end how that essay would turn out. So I don't know. I, I've been, you know, talking to Michelle. She's my voice of reason. You know, should I go for this? <laughs> Do I feel comfortable? Uh, it'd be nice to again contribute another neo peplum essay out there. You know, again try to establish myself as a, a subject matter expert on it. And if you know <laughs> if it doesn't happen, you know, I'll still be able to you know do a review for this book and help you know help help it be successful. I hope. So that's, that's, you know, look forward to another year or so, uh, a 20-year anniversary book on Gladiator from uh, from Very a, cool. I think called Yeah. So if I go for it, I'll let you know. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. And if you don't, just let us know when it comes out so we can help uh, promote it because uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, concept. I knew that there were Star Wars bands and Star Trek bands that took dialogue and you know, wove it into their their songs, but I wasn't aware uh, that uh, some of these bands were uh, uh, re-establishing in our popular culture on the fringes uh, something from the peplums. That, that's fascinating. It, it's pretty rare. Um, so, industrial bands—they've been sampling movies since Cabaret Voltaire was doing it way back in the late seventies, and it's kind of a, a thing they did. Uh, yeah, during the 80s, you had bands like Frontline Assembly, uh, Skinny Puppy, uh, Ministry, and, you know, kind of one of the gimmicks of industrial music back then was, you know, uh, you know, a lot of horror films and exploitation films, and 
and whatnot, that they would cut dialogue out of it and incorporate it into their music. Um, and that's just been a practice that's been going on a long time. And a lot of cyberpunk movies get used that way. Um, but yeah, after Gladiator came out, uh, I found a, a couple bands that have done that. There's um, a German industrial band called Bumpschutz, and they have a song called uh, Crown of Thorns, and it samples, uh, uh, oh, crud, what's the line? Something about, you know, the world is cruel and dark. I can't remember what character says it. And it kind of echoes hauntingly through the, sa- uh, the, um, the song. But then uh-huh. there's an Austrian uh, group called Proshnagrani. And I'm actually uh, friends with the musician of this band. I've actually sung some uh, songs on one of his other projects. His name is oh, Alex Spicer. But he has an actual uh, themed um, concept album called uh, – cried. hold on. Give me one second. I'll tell you what it's called. Um, uh, Pro Liberate Dimicandum Est. And it, this is a total peplum album. It's, in fact, all the songs is uh, instrumentals with dialogue lifted from both Gladiator – and 300, and some Lord of the Rings samples kind of thrown in together for a new narrative. And so um, that's cool. Um, highly, highly recommend that album. That is pure sword and sandal goodness from beginning to end. It's a, it's a black ambient industrial album, so it's, it can be kind of harsh to listen to it sometimes. But um, So I might write about it. I'm not sure. I got to knock off a couple other projects first. So we'll see. Okay. It sounds exciting. Um, and again, it's uh, it's fringy. So uh, a lot of people don't go to the fringes. So you're bringing back information from the fringes on things that uh, uh, generally uh, interest people more in the mainstream. That is an off- awfully awesome service you are uh, providing. I I appreciate that. You know, that's what I try to do is to try to find, uh, you know, I, I call myself a pop culture scholar, but what I'm really looking at is, you know, one, what hasn't been talked to before and what usually hasn't been talked about is what's at the border of pop culture and underground culture. Um, mm-hmm. You know, 20 years ago, people would have said things like, you know, 70s exploitation films and kraut rock music. Well, you know, that, those are pastors that have now are no longer fringe. They're fully explored, you know. So, you know, where are some other areas that haven't been explored yet? Um, you know, I look toward, like, uh, you know, I think we talked about this before, like the sword and sandal genre. I, I pretty much think that the, the 60s uh, cycle of uh, sword and sandal films is, it's it's pretty known. You know, you've got, you know, um, Stephen Smith and Nick, uh, can't remember his last name, you know, their group and, you know, uh, they they know the trivia, the history inside yeah, and out. But Paradise, an awesome uh, website. Um, but, uh, Nick Whale and Stephen Smith and uh, Pat Reeves. Yeah. Uh, he has some interesting groups too. And you know, and and they're total experts on that. But you know, what what can I add to that? I really can't. You know, there, I'm pretty sure there's other things that could be said about you know, sword and sandal of the '60s, but. You know, unfortunately, the modern era, not much is said about the modern day sword and sandal films and not just the films, but sword and sandal comics, sword and sandal video games. These are 
you know, important cultural things. You know, um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey came out last year, and it's a yeah. huge critical success. But, you know, what does that say about things? You know, who's talking about, you know, why is this important? What does it accomplish? And so, you know, even though it's popular and successful, where's the dialogue on it? So, you know, I try to carve a niche in those types of things. Um, the the neo-peplum or the new peplum is, uh, you know, a place where maybe I can um, become an expert on and talk intelligently about it. So we'll see. That, that's an excellent um, plan. You, you've already uh, started on that path of establishing yourself there. That's how we met. Um, so it, it, you're definitely making a name for yourself in that area. I appreciate it. Um, you know, I'm also a little bit more liberal of my definitions of that stuff. You know, not just sword and sandal, but, you know, sword and planet. Uh, as a side note, I'm hoping to finish my sword and planet essay in the next month, where I was looking at a whole bunch of the, the Lynn Carter stuff. I love that stuff. Yeah, me too. I, I love uh, Lynn Carter, and uh, Michelle had mentioned Fritz uh, Lieber. And uh, in uh-huh. the uh, sorcery genre, he did Thoffer and the Grey Mouser. And I think I had that entire uh, collection of books uh, still, uh, Swords Against Sorcery. It was always Swords Against Something in the title uh, of the books. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the next genre naming convention should be called Sword and Sun, just because it encompasses okay. everything under the And it keeps that alliteration. <laughs> Let, let's start using that and it will, it will make it a reality. Um, what else? I, I had two short stories uh, get accepted for publication, so that's kind of cool. Um, Fantastic. Because uh, I know you said that um, your fiction wasn't your strength, but you, you, yeah, your um, fiction submission for the Ultar book was really good. I enjoyed it. Uh, so these are fiction oh, tales? Yeah, they're they're flash fiction. One uh, is about seven hundred words, and the other one is uh, two hundred words. Um, I wrote a, a short story called "Journey to Agarthi," which is you know one of those okay. uh, cities at the center of the world, mm-hmm. and it comes out uh, an anthology in the next month called "Trickster's Treats Number Three, and it's a collection of stories, really short stories about the seven deadly sins. And it's put out by Thing in the Well uh, publisher. They're from Tasmania, surprisingly. Um, wow. And my short story is about a, a really greedy archaeologist who, you know, finds the city of Agarthi and he gets sucked up into the black hole at the center of the earth, like you do. <laughs> so I this mean, is Trick or Treats number three, right? The, the, yeah. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to post a link to it. So that was fun to write. Uh, you know, uh, I, I actually wouldn't mind writing a, a bigger story someday about, you know, combining H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness with, uh, you know, a hollow earth story. Um, I think that would be uh, fun to do. And then the second story I wrote is also from Things in the, the Well. It's for an anthology I to be honest, I don't remember what the anthology is called. I think it's called like uh, 
you know what? I don't remember. Uh, I've drawn a blank, and, you know, I'm going off the dome on a lot of this stuff. But my short story is called Scene Stalking Summoning Circle. And it's about a, a lady who summons her, uh, her deceased lover through a summoning circle. And it's a short 200-word story. And it's published in this uh, anthology of horror erotica stories. And so I thought, hey, you know, I've never written horror erotica, so let's give it a shot. And I did. And it was accepted, and I was flabbergasted. That is awesome, and looking forward to reading it. Uh, thanks. I'll keep you in the loop on those. Um, now, so you're experimenting a lot too. In in addition to uh, um, giving a voice uh, uh, to things that are in this nebulous area between the fringes and the underground, uh, you are also trying new genres out, which is which is very exciting. A lot of flexibility, and it'll be interesting to see what evolves from this. Well, see, you know, I keep a, an idea board of fiction uh, that I would love to write someday, but. You know, my, my passion keeps going back to, you know, the academic essays and, you know, wanting to, you know, accomplish stuff there, uh, you know, more sword and sandal essays, more, you know, stuff on tiki culture. Um, you know, that's still, I want that to be my next major, major project is a book on, uh, you know, uh, tiki and H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, it's just, you know, clearing the plate of all these other things to do it. Someday. <laughs> yeah, you will. <laughs> Now, wow, that's, that's I'm sorry, what was that, Hercules? That was that's exciting. Uh, all these different things you're doing and trying out, and uh, uh, very very exciting. Thanks. Now, one thing I'll talk about that's of interest to you, and we've talked about this a little briefly on Facebook, is you know I do read comic book reviews, and Dark yeah. Horse has published a four issue series called Berserker Unbound, and just like uh, the book uh, Sabbath, this comic book is about you, dude. It's about this berserker who is teleported through time to present-day New York, you know, wielding a sword <laughs> on his back, walking the streets. It is your life story, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s. And so my, I'm having a lot of fun reading. about that. <laughs> my show that What's I that? had the years ago was about that. I used to wander around New York in fur and leather, and I had a big sword strapped to my back, and uh, I had a bunch of minstrels with mini DV cams recording my adventures, and uh, uh, that was the premise of uh, Thor the Barbarian way back in the day. See, you know, all these other authors, they're writing the stories that you lived, you know, years before they could even write about them. I guess I'm ahead of my time, too. (laughs) I think so. So anyway, it's called Berserker Unbound. Uh, I, I'm digging it. Uh, definitely up your alley as well. Sword and sorcery and, and you know, put into the modern day setting. Uh, so I've been reading it and I'm enjoying them. Um, so I recommend that to you. Uh, Next time well, I'll pick up a copy and, uh, and read it. It's, it sounds like something I would greatly enjoy. It's cool. I think the last major thing, I think because we only got about eight minutes left, is um, mm-hmm. I did another uh, neo-peplum, a couple neo-peplum things. I think I talked briefly about this a couple months ago, but there is a, a graphic novel that came out in July called Sons of Chaos. And it's uh, 
not a traditional sword and sandal story. It's a sword and okay. shooter. It takes place during uh, the Greek War of Independence in the uh, 1820s. And uh, but it, it, for all purposes, though, it looks and reads like uh, a peplum. Uh, in fact, you know, it's presented a lot like Frank Miller's 300. It's packaged in this oversized, hardback, luxurious um, graphic novel. Uh, the imagery, even though there's, you know, uh, artillery involved, you know, they're still on horseback. They've got helmets and capes and swords, and, you know, they're in a Grecian setting. Um, and it's this fantastic um graphic novel. So even though it's not sword and sandal, you know, under my, you know, very loose definition of peplum, you know, I would consider it a neo-peplum uh, comic. And I highly uh, recommend it. I I interviewed the uh, author of it, Chris James. Oh, awesome. Uh, and, he, uh, and I also did a review of it. Michelle did a, a, a video interview with him down at uh, uh, San Diego Comic-Con. It's just one of those uh, comics I totally, totally believe in. Um, at WonderCon earlier this year, I ran into James just as a fluke. He was at the IDW publisher booth just talking about his comic. And I, you know, I was just walking by and I looked over and I looked at the cover and, you know, it's a total sordid sandal cover. And I, you know, did a double take. I'm like, what? And so, you know, I had to go talk to him and learn all about this uh, graphic novel and uh, highly, Highly recommend it as a an excellent neo peplum comic. Uh, I I I strongly think uh, what Frank Miller's Three Hundred accomplished for Sword and Sandal comics ten years ago, this comic will accomplish now. I put a link to it uh, down uh, underneath the announcement uh, that I did today. So if folks want to. Uh, look there and uh, they can link and explore further for themselves. Uh, it, it looks and sounds incredibly awesome. And I remember when you talked about this uh, um, not too long ago. I, I, yeah, since then I've, I've had to read it and uh, it met and exceeded all expectations. Beautiful artwork, great story. Um, you know, there, yeah, there's some uh, historical factual liberties taken. I mean, I mean, that's, that's just what happens. You know, there's a love story kind of thrown in stuff. But, you know, hey, Frank Miller's 300 was not exactly 100% historic accurate either. It didn't stop no, it from being were, amazing. There weren't orcs or rhinos in the Peloponnesian Wars. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. <clears throat> Let's see. What else happened in this past couple? As Michelle was saying, um, we went to PowerCon, which is the He-Man and She-Ra convention, uh-huh. and uh, and that's a lot of fun. You know, when I was a little kid, I'd watched He-Man and She-Ra, but that was, you know, 30 years ago. So it's nice to kind of revisit that world. Uh, they really focused on the new uh, She-Ra cartoon on Netflix, which I haven't had a chance to see, but I've watched, like, clips online, and it's it is fantastic what I uh, have seen of it you know it's you know still kid friendly um, has you know a modern day charm to it but you know it's, what, it's what's interesting about PowerCon is you learn so much about not just He-Man and She-Ra but just kind of about 80s toy culture like how uh-huh. there's a big uh, lack of, uh, influence on uh, He-Man and She-Ra because um, 
you know, what we learned over the past couple of years going to PowerCon is, you know, when the show ended and the figurines were dried up is they sent all the figurine molds down to factories in Brazil. And so they used them to crank out kind of He-Man knockoffs. And so kids are kind oh, of wow. growing up. I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, these kind of knockoff toys. But then at the same time, they started syndicating He-Man down there. And so people had their, you know, bootleg toys, but also are now getting around to watching the show. And so you had this huge generation of kids that grew up with He-Man and She-Ra and learning their values and morals, but also having these kind of derivative toys. And I guess this has been a big influence in the decades since. And so I think that's kind of a, you know, a fascinating little aspect of uh, He-Man and She-Ra fandom. Yes, yeah, so it's very fascinating. I, I remember uh, I was an adult already when uh, um, He-Man uh, came out, and I remember my son growing up, my eldest son growing up with uh, He-Man and She-Ra, and uh, it became difficult to keep track of everything. There were just so many uh, variations and uh, so many different toys uh, coming out that uh, uh, they were hard to get. And when we had our store, the Barbarian Bazaar in Pennsylvania, uh, we used to sell old toys and games, and uh, uh, we had like a whole section devoted to, to He-Man. So uh, oh, that's, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Wait, we used to have a little uh, pop culture store back in the day? Yes, it was called the Barbarian Bazaar, and uh, it was cool in Ina, Pennsylvania. And uh, we had uh, – it was uh, – Oh, wow. I lost track of time. They just announced uh, that they're cutting us off in 90 seconds. Uh, to be continued, thank you, Nicholas, and thank you, Michelle. You're awesome. Uh, I enjoyed having this time with both of you and catching up, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next time. Oh, well, thank you very much. I think next month we'll have a guest on for you, but we'll keep you abreast of that. But in the meantime, I hope you have an excellent new week this week. And I hope very much that uh, you're feeling better. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, And thanks to all who've joined us from home. Until next time, joyous journeys and awesome adventures to you all. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us. Seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.